1965, Burt Bacharach composed the song called What the World Needs Now is Love. It was released as many Americans had differing opinions about the Vietnam War, but the song's message seemed to be something anyone could agree with. As the world, and particularly the United States, once again finds itself divided across varying issues, I think there may be no better time than now for the episode you're about to hear, which is all about one kind of love, charity. In his new book, A Better Heart, Tom Christofferson writes, The experiences of our lives teach us to see the world in a particular way. And yet, in order to truly be of one heart with those around us, to love our neighbors deep, especially the ones who see and understand the world differently, we have to be willing to think in new ways, to open our minds and our hearts, and finally, our arms. This is true regardless of any unkindness or contempt they may have shown us. If our concern is for healing, if our hearts are set on obtaining the gift of charity, then our imperative is for continuous engagement. Only by persistently demonstrating genuine empathy can we rise above a conversation of contention to one centered on sharing where we find meaning in life, our sources of peace and of joy. Tom Christofferson has spent his career in investment management and asset servicing, living in the United States and Europe. He has served as a director on corporate and nonprofit boards and as a volunteer with agencies combating homelessness and long-term unemployment. He is the author of That We May Be One, A Gay Mormon's Perspective on Faith and Family, as well as his new book, A Better Heart, The Impact of Christ's Pure Love. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so thrilled to have Tom Christofferson on the line with me today. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Good to be with you. Well, this is such a treat for me, and I have been looking forward to this conversation, especially as I've gone through your new book, A Better Heart. And I just have so many questions for you. So I'll just dive right into it, if that's all right. My first question for you, Tom, at the very end of the book, I caught something in the acknowledgments page where you said that much of the final editing of this book took place in London when you were invited to spend some time there as a guest of President David Checkets and his wife, Deborah Checkets. And you called it a daily immersion in Christ's pure love. And so I wondered... First of all, I just am curious about this. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and why you referred to it as that, a daily immersion in Christ's pure love? So this this occurred about two months into you know, when we were all uh, staying at home related to the pandemic and what in London was referred to as lockdown. But uh, one day as I was sitting in my home in Mesa, Arizona, I texted President Sister Checkets and, and just said, hey, if I came over for a month or two, is there anything you could, any way you could use me? Is there anything I could do to be helpful? And in about 3.2 seconds, I got a response back and said, how soon? <laughs> and so I spent a good portion of May and June in London with them. As the, as the pandemic had begun, almost all of the senior couple missionaries had had to return to their homes. And so, you know, lots of things were happening on an ad hoc basis. And so 
the Czechs were generous enough to to give me some projects and make me feel like I could do something helpful. And the the interesting thing about that was because the missionaries were largely in their apartments, with the exception of uh, exercise time, and some who were able to go to the chapel to use the Wi-Fi to do their activities during the day, we really didn't see them. And so it was a kind of a strange experience of working with missionaries, but not seeing them. But each evening there was a Zoom call with the mission. And uh, each night had a different theme. And then with zone conferences and interviews, it ended up that over the course of that uh, six weeks, I think I saw every missionary much more frequently than I would have had we been doing it in person. And having the opportunity to hear them speak about their experiences during lockdown, about being able to teach more frequently than they had before, uh, finding people who had more time to listen and were willing to engage. And, you know, that great feeling of their love for the people that they were meeting virtually and having a chance to testify to them of Christ. And, you know, as I, when I was there, there were more people who had uh, made a commitment to baptism during that period than would have been the case uh, in normal times. Now, there was a challenge in being able to access baptismal fonts, and so it was you know, a long time before people could actually become members of the Church of Jesus Christ. But there was such a wonderful spirit of love and harmony and even uh, excitement for doing the work in creative ways in a challenging time. It's beautiful. That's such a neat experience. And I love I love that you had that experience as you were wrapping up this book project. Tom, one thing that I have heard said around Deseret Book a lot as people have anticipated this book is that it is not a sequel to That They May Be One. It is a new book, and it's not about your experience of being gay, but you use your experience of being a gay member of the church. For example, I love where you write in the book, perhaps you have had an experience similar to mine. Growing up, I felt there was something about me that the Lord needed to change. So I fasted, prayed, pleaded, and tried to obey my way into perfect worthiness. And those that are familiar with your story know what you're talking about there. But I love, I love, Tom, that like what you describe in that little sentence is something that everybody's felt. And that's one thing that has struck me over and over again as we've done these podcast interviews is that while the situation may be different, the lessons that we're learning are often the same. And so I wondered, what have you learned about that as you've kind of gone through your journey in life? You know, as we were talking with friends at Deseret Book about the possibility of this book, because it's it's a topic, the, the gift of charity in particular, but but how we come individually to feel Christ's love for us and how we can be instruments to transmit His love to others. I was talking with friends at Desert Book about some thoughts in that regard. And and I think I said, you know, I really, I don't want to write a gay book. I just want to write a book about, you know, one person's search for the gift of charity. And as I turned in the first draft of the book, my dear friend, Laurel Christensen Day said, you know, this is wonderful, but I don't really get a sense of you in the search. And I said, well, if I if I do that, then, you know, then I'm bringing in my experiences as a gay member of the church again. And I kind of wanted it not to be that. And she said, just let it be you. 
and uh, and so there there is more in there than I had originally intended. But it's but it's really true. The way that I have come to feel the Savior's love is through the reality of my life, right? And one of those realities is that I'm gay, and so I think I think there is a universal message in all that, which is all of us have either aspects of uh, you know physical challenges or our personalities or, you know, or the things that life throws at us in one way or another that can make us feel that there's something about us that uh, is off-putting to the Lord, or, or perhaps that if other people fully knew us, they wouldn't want to be associated with us. You know, those, those experiences, I think, are more universal than we perhaps uh, imagine in our own hearts. And yet, I've really come to feel that it's those times when we are fully immersed in a desire to draw closer to the Savior and overcoming the temptation to try and hide from him, as if we could, you know, the aspects that we're wrestling with. But it's those it's those moments, I think, in the in the quiet of the soul, when we really do come to sense his knowledge of us as an individual and his love for us encompassing every aspect of who we are the things that we think are beautiful and the things that we think are not. And yet his love encompasses everything. I agree completely. I love, Tom, throughout the book, you talk about ways of sharing Christ-like love. And you give a lot of different examples. But as you were looking for these, I imagine that you discovered more and more. I think it's like anything, right? The more that we're looking for something, the more we see it. Are there any examples that you discovered that really stand out in your mind? You know, I I guess because of COVID especially, and the challenges that, that we're facing in that regard, one that that is so powerful to me is a, a couple that I know here um, know well, who are have an assignment in a regional public affairs committee uh, relating to interfaith outreach, and you know they've invested years in getting to know the leaders of different faiths and congregations uh, in in our area, uh, and they are as a result well loved and known. I mentioned in the book sitting in a congregation with them when the pastor over the pulpit acknowledges their presence and says that they are representatives of our sister church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And how powerful I thought that was, that their example causes others to feel that we desire to be their brother and sister uh, in an institutional sense and in a personal sense. But um, you know, with COVID, it's been even more challenging to to be able to keep those connections going when many congregations haven't been meeting or meeting in reduced numbers or online. And and I've marveled at the extra effort they've put in during this time. And then you know, as as we live in a a time of great contention, especially as the elections were coming around and and the period immediately following. You know, they made that a part of their ministry as well to be sure that that they understood how different congregations were feeling and members were approaching some of the challenges and and their efforts to be peacemakers in all aspects, to be ones who were eager to listen and learn, um, to empathize and to really sense the realities, the 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 very real challenges in the lives of individuals. 
and to express through their actions the the love of Christ for each person in the in the really the most difficult of times and finding ways to make common cause between our church and other churches that can lift other people i think in mckay coppin's recent piece for the for the atlantic where he profiles president nelson and the church i was struck by a comment that president nelson made and i'm not going to get the words exactly right but it was something to the effect of the purpose of the church is to make people's lives better and you know I, I in my friends i see that sort of a ministry it's not an effort to convert it's not an effort to change people's relationship with christ but it's an effort to be sure that everyone feels his love in ways that will make their lives better yeah i think that idea of of the church that being the purpose of the church and then and then if you substitute in there what is the purpose of a disciple of Christ? Then what is the purpose of a Latter-day Saint? Then very easily it can just be to leave people better than we found them. And I think that's a powerful thought. Uh, one of my very favorite examples in the book, Tom, of Christ-like love is your mother. And I didn't get to tell you this after I read that they may be one, but I was obsessed with your mom then and I'm still obsessed with your mom now. And every every time that you tell a story about her, I am just in awe of her goodness and of her example of what it means to be not only a mother, but just a, a person of charity. Right. How do you think that your mom became such a charitable person with the right kind of heart? And how has her example impacted your life, Tom? Right. <clears throat> you know, one of my friends, um, after reading that first book, said something similar, said, you know, after I get to heaven and, and greet my mom, I want to meet yours. <laughs> but, Seriously, uh, sign me up for that line as well. She was a, a wonderful person, saintly with a great sense of humor uh, and a sense of humor about herself as well. I, I, I give an example or share an experience in this book that, uh, that I mentioned is sort of sacred to my brothers and me. About six months after I was born, my mother was diagnosed with throat cancer, and it was advanced by the time they had found it. And so the surgery was scheduled almost immediately. I mean, she was really sent in the hospital the very next day and and very extensive surgery. And frankly, the doctors didn't hold much hope for a successful outcome. And when she survived the first night, they started to feel that it could be hopeful. And then as the week went on, she got pneumonia. And and then they felt again, and her, her primary care physician told our father that he didn't think that she would last the night and that uh, he should say his final farewells and arrange the same for the family. So in the book, I tell that story in mom's words. She recorded it in her history. And I think that experience of, of coming so near death and feeling in a sense that she could choose whether to stay with pain and suffering ahead or to let it go and and the feeling of peace and love that came with that. You know, I, I think she really made a choice about her desire to raise her sons and to be with her husband and family and I think she had a real clarity of purpose in her life. Her, in, she had another 
cancer scare later in life. She had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and was able to overcome that. Through my early years of growing up, her health was not great, so she was often bedridden. But I think she really had a clarity about what was important, what mattered, what she wanted to teach her boys, and both in in the form of teaching by speaking and teaching by example. She was one who, um, you know, never made a show of her kindness or her outreach to others. It just was something she did so quietly and naturally, but was always attentive, I think, to the to the person in any group who seemed on the outside, to someone who just seemed like maybe they didn't fit. And her, that seemed to be a call to her to go find a way to connect with that individual and bring them into the circle and have them feel loved and wanted and uh, and able to contribute themselves, to expand their ability to contribute because they had felt both my mother's love and the Savior's love through her. Yeah. I imagine, Tom, that in, and I, I'm basing this assumption off of things from that they may be one, but I imagine that often in your family, you felt like that person on the outside and, and how important it was for your mom to be somebody that could bring you in and make you feel a part. And I think that that is a, a special Christ-like quality. Yeah, I agree. I think in my case, I can see pretty clearly that times when I felt like I was on the outside was because I, that was a perception or a way I was placing myself. I don't think my parents ever wanted me to feel on the outside. And, uh, and each of us in our own ways tried very hard to make sure that we would stay united as a family. And so I, I I think about that in my own experiences, that there are things each of us can do because of our internal feelings that cause us to put ourselves on the margins or to find the margins a more comfortable place to be. And what a powerful gift it is for someone to see us and to extend their love in a way that allows us to, to lay down some of our barriers or our own feelings of insufficiency and and to allow that love to permeate us. I agree completely. Tom, I want to delve into a few things that you share in this book that I thought were particularly powerful. At one point you write, perhaps the greatest blessing the Lord has in store during time of adversity is to change our hearts rather than changing our afflictions. And you already, we already touched on, you know, that kind of desire growing up that, that the Lord would change something about you. And again, I think that's something that all of us have felt at some point, like, make me more like this person or take this problem away from me. But I love this idea of asking the Lord to change our hearts rather than our circumstance. How have you seen the power of afflictions in changing our hearts? You know, it's a, it's a thought that really struck me on Sunday as, as we were concluding our sort of pre-Christmas sacrament meeting. And, and as we do now, with it being broadcast, the last thing we do in that meeting then is to actually prepare, bless, and administer the sacrament. And what struck me in the sacramental prayers Sunday, perhaps more than it has before, was the word sanctify. 
that the emblems of Christ's offering are sanctified for us, the souls of all who partake of it. And it struck me that, you know, the that sacrament is an emblem of his sacrifice, his suffering, right, his broken body and blood. And that suffering is sanctified for us and to us. And I think I think it can be the same for us that in, in difficult circumstances, in our greatest challenges and trials, as we draw closer to the Savior, that suffering which becomes learning can be sanctified to bless others. That I think that our healing in some senses not only comes from feeling the Savior's healing love, but also from being able to extend what we our own healing, our learning, our experience to convey more clearly, more powerfully the love of Christ into the lives of others. And I you talked not too long ago with with a friend of mine, Melissa in a way. And oh, yeah. and uh, she said something I won't I'm not going to do her quote justice, but it was something to the effect of it doesn't matter how awesome you are if you're not useful to other people. I think that's I think that's what we're saying here that that our own suffering is redemptive in a sense, but its power is in its usefulness to other people. That as our as we are refined or our hearts are purified and changed, we become more useful to people around us. We become better, more effective disciples of Jesus Christ because we're kind of getting out of our own way a bit and and his, the purity of his love can come through you know more clearly uh, as we interact with other people. Yeah. That reminds me of the words of the hymn More Holiness Give Me where it says more used would I be. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting when I think about my own life and things that have been hard I look back and I'm like, oh, that was a way that the Lord was then able to use me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. I've used this example before on this podcast, but one of the most powerful thoughts that I think has ever been shared with me, my aunt um, has a, a bunch of daughters and she said that she used to, anytime somebody would come to church and they were wearing like a short skirt, their daughter was wearing a short skirt, she would think like, what on earth is that mom thinking? And then she's like, and then I had teenage girls and she, and she started to get teary eyed and I get teary eyed every time I think about it. And she said, I know exactly what that mom was thinking. She was just thinking, I'm so glad they came to church today. Right. And so I think it's so interesting how once we have an experience, it shifts our perception so much that then I think we are able to see things the way that our heavenly father sees them. And, and then we are more used in that way. Another thing that I love that you touch on in the book, Tom, is you talk about how sometimes we have this tendency to think of the Lord as someone whose actions can be manipulated by our own. And I think that this is, this is a tendency that we have and, and, 
it is so natural that I think often we don't think about it. But I wondered if you could touch on how we see that, how that manifests itself, and how we can avoid doing that. Right. I, you know, I think we we focus on the promises sometimes that through obedience, blessings occur, right? That there's a, a blessing predicated on our obedience. And so, in a sense, we, we can start to use our obedience as a tool to force God to do what we want him to do. Right now, Kind of weaponize it. Right. And, it, you know, when, when we say it that way, of course, it's ridiculous, right? No one really thinks that. But but I think we have to take a step back and say, you know, in, in our prayers, are we always prescriptive? That's why I love the notion that the important element of our prayer is our gratitude, not our wish list. And I, you know, the Lord invites us to pray over our crops and our fields and our families and everything. And it's, so that's certainly uh, an important aspect of our communication with him to share the feelings and desires of our hearts. But I, but I also think there's a sense where where we stop telling him the way he needs to accomplish his purposes in our lives, and and ask him for the end result, which is, you know, my great desire is to know thee and to know thy son, or you know, my desire is to be a more effective disciple of Jesus Christ in the world. I I want to be someone who helps reduce the burdens of others and, and let the Lord give us the experiences that teach us the lessons we need to learn in that sense. I loved President Uchtdorf's talk years ago of perfect love cast without fear that, that when our focus is love, we don't, we aren't fearful of not obeying. The only reason we want to obey is because we love so much. And we love our heavenly parents, we love our Savior, and want to do everything we can to draw closer to them, to to reduce the noise in our lives so that there's a purer line of communication between us and, and our feelings of their presence, our desires to draw closer become more constant. Yeah. I love that you brought up that scripture from Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about uh, there's a blessing predicated. I just had a conversation on Saturday, actually, with a friend of mine who said that he had been thinking a lot about that scripture and about the idea that, you know, we think that we know what the blessing is and the blessing that is attached to each commandment. But that oftentimes that blessing may be different than the one that we think is attached to the commandment. And I think that's a, that's a powerful thought. And I think it's something that can, he said, he actually said, I said, well, I think that's a very good approach. And he said, well, it helps me maintain sanity. <laughs> and I, I think it's true though. We, if we become so caught up in this idea that if I do this, then this is what Heavenly Father is going to give me then we can easily become disappointed or discouraged or even angry with Heavenly Father when that blessing doesn't seem to be coming. But if we look at it more broadly, we look at it as something where, you know what, I'm going to be surprised by the blessing that He gives me for that. And I love also what you said about prayer because 
in the Bible dictionary, my favorite Bible dictionary definition is the one about prayer where it talks about aligning our will with the Father. Right. And I think mm-hmm. if we recognize that what He wants to give us is always going to be better than what we have in mind for ourselves than we do. We come bring ourselves into submission and align our will with his. So thank you so much. I think that's such a great thought. Oh, Morgan, I think, I think that's a great insight you've shared. I, I, I once heard someone say that, you know, the purpose of, of life is to show that we will obey. <clears throat> and I said, you know, I think that's an effect. <laughs> the cause is to choose to love, that we choose to love our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Mother, our Savior when we can't see them. And through that love, we then desire to align our lives with theirs, align our will, our desires. And, and I I think you said exactly right, you know, that that's our hearts become changed as our desire is to love as they love, love what they love and how they love. So beautifully said. Another thing that I love in the book, you share Joseph Smith's words after the very first time he recorded the first vision. And I may be the only person that has never heard this, but I loved it so much. So he said, my soul was filled with love. And for many days, I could rejoice with great joy and the Lord was with me. And then Tom, you go on to write, parents can often describe one particularly vivid memory of a joyful moment with a child in a twinkling flash of thought. I never want her to grow. I want this instant to be frozen in time. That has been my feeling as well after precious points when I have become fully aware of Christ's knowledge of me and luxuriated in the feeling of his love. And I love that, Tom, because I think for all of us, when we hear those words, it kind of stirs something in us and we can remember times in our own lives where we felt that same joy. But I wondered for you, if you wouldn't mind sharing one or two of those precious points with Christ with us. There are moments big and small, right? And I I worry sometimes we focus only on the big ones uh, when it's the small ones, the daily ones that have the real power because they're what keep moving us. But I, you know, the probably the earliest, most powerful one uh, for me of my awareness of Christ's knowledge of me was in my mid-20s, and I felt I'd kind of gone as far as I could go. I had been an active member of the church, you know, served a mission, had been married in the temple for a brief time, um, felt that, that I was gay and needed to, to figure out a different way to, to live my life, and and I just felt like I'd come to the end of the rope, and I, I knelt down to pray, and and I think in the perhaps one of the purer prayers of my life just said, do you, do you know who I am? Do you know I'm here? And received that uh, incredible feeling of warmth and awareness and love. And it, that guided me, that awareness, the, the feeling that I wasn't here alone was uh, transformative for me in my life and a touch point for the rest of my life. But I, but I think about the smaller experiences too, and and for me that's often, you know, just that that in an unplanned moment of seeing a need and being able to respond, and even better, seeing a need being able to respond anonymously. There's in that moment, I have a feeling of 
a love for, you know, my striving to act as the Savior would act. You know, it's not a gold star on the forehead. It's it's a, just that quiet feeling of you helped. So good. I love that. Tom, one thing, as you were just talking about that, I imagine that after saying that prayer and feeling that feeling, like most of us, we have these moments of clarity where everything seems to make sense and we know that we're loved by God, but then discouragement can creep in. And you write a bit in this book about the role that discouragement can play in our quest toward developing Christ-like love. What have you personally learned about discouragement? You know, as we were reading uh, the concluding chapters of the Book of Mormon, the message is repeated again as Moroni quotes his father. Uh, But the idea that, you know, faith is the foundation, right? We begin with the desire to believe. And then as we do believe and, and begin to have faith, we act on that faith and gain hope, right? We, in our acts, actions of our faith, we come to believe in Christ, right? And we come to see his reality, um, and then because of that, we have hope in him. We have hope that we will be able to become like him, that we'll learn the aspects of his character that can draw us closer to him and refine us. And we hope then that we'll be able to see him and be with him and perhaps even to have him consider us worthy servants. And it's it's the hope in that sense, I think, that leads us then to charity, right? That we've come to believe in Christ, our hope in him has become a sanctifying influence in our lives. And then we put that in action through his gift of charity, that that it's that opportunity to be able now to simply be an instrument in his hands, to transmit as purely as we possibly can his affection, his knowledge, his intimate awareness of every individual, and then to strengthen them in their faith and to help them have hope. And also then to that virtuous circle that that they also then begin to desire the gift of charity, the spiritual gift of charity, and to draw closer to him as a result. And, and the ripples of that influence extend and extend and extend. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that the opposite of hope is despair. And I think despair is closely related to discouragement. And so when we root out that despair and replace it with hope, then I think that makes a lot of sense. I love where you write, Tom, to fully absorb the divinity of Jesus Christ and his infinite atonement, to know for ourselves that he is real and his doctrine true requires an active engagement, an honest interrogation of our own souls, turning to him, repenting, acting again with greater intention to know, seeking and receiving personal power to endure through Christ enabling power and his witness to our minds and hearts of truth and needed action. 
information. Failing to act, to gain, and grow this knowledge is like placing a beautifully wrapped gift in the middle of a table and admiring it day after day, enjoying its beauty without ever opening and experiencing the gift. And then you ask, so how do we open the gift? How do we begin this process of actively engaging with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I wonder, Tom, as you worked on this book, what you found about how we begin to open that gift. And, and I love that you, ter- you term that as actively engaging with the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than just allowing it to sit dormant on our table. Right. Listening to you read that reminds me of my wonderful editor at Deseret Book, Emily Watts, who said, I'm going to give you the gift of periods. She got <laughs> sentences. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> the paragraph long sentences. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, yeah, I, 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 I think the point of it all is that um, the reason Christ would feel it necessary to restore a church rather than simply to individually communicate with each of us and through the light of Christ to uh, draw us closer to him, to teach us the lessons. Um, the To me, the purpose of a church is that there is an effort of communal salvation, that, uh, that we only really experience the gospel of Jesus Christ as we engage with other people. The, the essence of his gospel is the love of our neighbor as well as of our heavenly parents and gratitude for his gift. I think it goes beyond kind of our volunteer work or taking meals. Those are great and wonderful and they matter. But I think it's, it's like the, the way that uh, the reworded Temple Recommend questions have included the word strive. You know, it's, are we striving to really implement our understanding of Christ's gospel, which is uh, to mourn with those who mourn, to walk with one another, to comfort those and bless the lives, to bear one another's burdens? You know, isn't that interesting that our very first covenant is directed outwardly? That um, that the way we live the covenant is how we engage with other people. And and to me, the great purpose of the restoration is the temple. And the purpose of the temple is to build a Zion society, right? It's not, our, I mean, critically, we are each uh, finding our ways to purify and cleanse and renew and turn toward the Savior. But it's all about the community, the communal aspect of bringing together the entire family of God and forging those bonds so strongly that they will never be broken again, that we will be united as a family of God with our heavenly parents, with our Savior, and in a way that, you know, we never want anyone to be missing, that that we will do everything in our power to, to pull everyone into that family through the love we can communicate from Christ and our desire to, that our striving uh, to believe that exaltation is a family of God event more than an individual one. 
I feel like this episode is going to serve as an endorsement from me for not only this new book, but also for that We May Be One, because I think, Tom, the story that you tell in that book is one of the greatest examples to me of what you were just talking about, because from your family to ward and stake levels, I think what you experienced and the love that you received was such a just a beautiful example of the ways in which Christ-like love can affect us in our lives. And I, I want to touch really quickly before we move past this quote, there's one part of it that really stands out to me. And it's where you say, seeking and receiving personal power to endure through Christ enabling power and his witness to our minds and hearts of truth and needed action. And I think, Tom, that idea of receiving power to endure is so, so good. And all of us are going through things where it's like, when is this going to be over? Where is the end? And so I love that idea of being given the power to endure. And I wonder how you would say that you've experienced that in your own life. I think um, one example that comes to mind is uh, after my relationship of nearly 19 years or 19 years had ended with uh, with the man who was my best friend and partner and and the person who most taught me how to love someone more than I love myself. I soon after was in a place where I just felt so completely alone and lonely and cold and dark. And and as I prayed in that moment that this would not be my life, I had such a, a feeling of comfort. And I've, I've said in other places that when we describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter, it's a literal truth. It's not just a name. But I also... I think of another moment, and it was this was a more prolonged period where I felt like I was, through some circumstances, was feeling very negative and and kind of going to a darker place. and And I prayed and prayed and prayed to to know what to do. And the answer that came to me in that instance was, finally, over a period of time that I should pray for the spiritual gift of hope in Christ. And not not hope like optimism as the antidote to discouragement or courage as the antidote to discouragement, but or even a, in a specific outcome, but but the spiritual gift of hope in Christ that my mind would be centered on him. And that when I focus on him, everything else can sort of wash off my back. I can be reminded of how incredibly generous he's been to me in ways I could never merit. And certainly other people are more deserving than I, but but his generosity to me when I focus on my hope in him of being able to to have a heart like his, to become more like him over time and even in small ways. And that that hope that gives meaning to life and purpose to life and not not always looking beyond life to what comes next but that to a hope in Christ allows the richness even in difficult times of the day because there is that sense that that we are here in a way that can be meaningful to others 
that we can be useful to other people, as Melissa said, um, that that we can fulfill our baptismal covenant, that we can build a Zion people, that our our individual contribution can be tiny and and insignificant in so many ways, and yet it's essential. That that what gifts the Lord has given me, I contribute, and that Morgan, you do, and each one of us, as we as we draw our hope in Christ, then then the opportunities are given to us in a day to be able to expand that because we can see reflected back in the eyes of another. That's so well said. I love that so much. My last question for you, Tom, and uh, this is the question that we ask at the conclusion of every episode of this podcast, is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? To me, it's the first and second great commandment. It's, it's my desire to come to know heavenly parents and Savior, uh, to know, especially the Savior, to know his character, because in the Gospels and in Third Nephi, we have such a vivid way to be able to observe his interactions with others as well as to receive his teachings. But it's to strive to develop a heart like his, to love what he loves, which is his children in a spiritual sense, those that, that he has begotten because of his sacrifice in our behalf. And that's that's all in to me, is to be all in uh, in my desire to draw closer to him and feel and transmit his love in my life. Thank you so much, Tom. Tom, it is always such a pleasure to talk with you. And I just, I appreciate your goodness and your willingness to share that with us today. Thanks for your time, Morgan. It's been a pleasure. We are so grateful to Tom Christofferson for joining us on today's episode. I would just like to add on a personal note that I am convinced Tom has one of the best smiles of all time, and I was grateful to have had the chance to speak with him this week. You can find A Better Heart in Deseret Bookstores now. Thanks to Derek Campbell from Mix It Six Studios for his help with this episode, and thank you for listening.